when I get to the water, I, I'm not ranked. I, you know, I have the rod, I have the line, I'm the leader and so forth. But I, I get to the water, I take a look, I think about things for a few moments. And then once I, once I see the factors, those, those variables, that's when I build my rig. But I try not to build a rig beforehand because when I do, I am, I just, I'm, I'm predisposed to basically use what I've already rigged up. And usually it's not the right rig. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Fly Crate. Get double the flies when you join their monthly fly club for a fun way to learn fly fishing and discover new flies each month. Just use the code DOUBLETHEFLIES at checkout or stock up on flies for your next trip and get free shipping on all orders of $15 or more. Go to www.theflycrate.com to adventure by the fly. We're going to try something a little different that we've been meaning to do for quite some time. We're looking to get a little more interactive with you, the listeners. So if you've got some ideas regarding topics, uh, some questions maybe you'd like to ask some of our guests, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the podcast, shoot me an email at mark at flyfishing97.com, and we'll try the best to get your questions answered. At the same time, get some of the guests that you would like to hear from. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this time around, really excited to welcome to the program George Daniel. Now, George Daniel is out of Central PA, author, writer, teacher, um, big-time competitor, five World Fly Fishing Championships, um, coached the U.S. youth team, uh, Fly Fishing Team USA for four World Championships, uh, authored some books, a couple of books, and along with some articles, of course, in Fly Fisherman, American Angler, and Fly Tire Magazine. An honor to have you on the show. George, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. I, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to kind of listen to any of the podcasts, but what I always like to do at the beginning of the show, George, is kind of take you back to your roots, if you will. I like to find out how your passion for fly fishing started. Yeah, I mean, where, where I grew up, I grew up in a... I would say a remote kind of like a village. It was actually probably the only village in the state of Pennsylvania called Germania. And we were a one car family. My father had a you know, kind of a, a long time day job. So he was away from home a lot. So we didn't really have a car. Uh, and I had this little brook trout fishery called Germania branch, which was a tributary to a main stem uh, called Kellow Creek. But essentially I had this, little beautiful brook trout fishery that was run past my house and it was a kids only section and I was the only kid in the entire village that fished. So I had this kind of this private brook trout fishery all to myself. My, my old man, uh, my father introduced me to fly fishing, but long story short, very impatient uh, person was good enough to introduce me, but was not so much a good teacher. So I essentially kind of got uh, my feet wet, uh, just kind of learning on my own, uh, making a lot of mistakes, but kind of just growing up, kind of teaching myself for a number of years. And, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old and it's hard to believe, you know, a lot of the people now that, you know, I grew up in a, in a world where there wasn't a YouTube and, you know, the internet. So it was kind of just learning on your own. And then, you know, you fast forward, uh, my family then relocated to the central part of the state, uh, and, and state college. And, I'm about 14 years old, and that's when I got to meet my mentor, uh, Joe Humphreys. And I knew about Joe for years. You know, he caught this Pennsylvania State record brown trout at, at night, and I had all those books along with his mentor, George Harvey. And I just grew up idolizing these guys. And finally, when I was 14, I moved into the area that these guys lived. And uh, long story short, met Joe, but just hassled the hell out of for about a year and a half until he agreed to go fishing with me. <laughs> and then after we went fishing, we kind of hit it off, and he kind of took me under his wing. And then I would say probably about the age of 15, 16, that's when I actually started getting some formal instruction. And then, you know, I just, I knew Joe. Uh, he, you know, he kind of was, he was my hero. I, I, you know, this was a guy who made a living teaching at Penn State and just basically taught what he loved doing. Uh, and that was kind of uh, something that really inspired me. So even at 16, 17, I started taking part-time jobs, uh, just working odd-end jobs, and then actually hiring uh, fly fishing instructors, casters and instructors. I, 
I was hiring, uh, earning my own money to pay for instruction at ages uh, 16 and 17 because this was just, it was just something I really was interested in doing. Uh, and it kind of just went from there. That's quite a story. And I'm always, I, I admire the passion because, you know, as a, as a young as a young guy getting into it, where did that passion come from? Just just from out of, did, did you see it coming? I'm always curious because it just all of a sudden, are you passionate about everything you do or was it just fly fishing kind of was it for you? Now, fly fishing was it for me. It was I had kind of blinders. I mean, I, I was I, I was a jock. I did you know some sports. I had some interest, but you know when the, when the when the year was over, when the day is over, I mean, there was just like there was just like one focus uh, in my life at that point, and I was just just fishing. You would do sports. Um, you know, you would try different activities. You know, buddies would try to take you archery, hunt, archery shooting. You go hunting. You go backpacking, camping. And, you know, all great sports, but for some for some reasons, fishing just, I mean, it, it just stuck with me. You know, and, and there's a number of reasons why, you know, people might be drawn to particular activities, but I just love the problem solving, you know, and as an instructor, you know, I, I like the how-to. I know some people just like kind of the basics, just learning just, you know, just enough to kind of get them into the outdoors, and I, I love that, and I appreciate that, but what I really love to do is actually trying to solve problem solve find out why things happen for the reasons that they do and be able to translate and, and transfer that information that to basically cut the learning curve for other people in half or a quarter or in some cases maybe an eighth so i just love solving problems and with fly fishing as you know there's always problems to solve it's just dynamic systems environments changing fish behaviors changing and it's just this big puzzle. And, you know, just like with any activity, I think what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, that's the purpose of a lifelong activity is to kind of, you know, we all are dealing with the daily grind. We're dealing with, you know, life. Life throws out lemons to hang. And sometimes what you need is an activity that kind of takes your mind off of that. And I can't think of a better activity than fly fishing because in order to be successful with fly fishing, I mean, you have got to be like 100% focused. If you're not focused, you're you're not going to succeed. And I just love how fly fishing just allows you to develop that focus, and it takes your mind off of everything other than what's in front of you on the water. Yeah, that's that's really well said, George. Okay, so I know you're somebody that loves to kind of pass the sport on or the pastime on to other people and teach them. Maybe speak to what it means to have kind of a mentor in your corner, like like you mentioned, Joe, somebody to learn from. How important is that? You know, it's 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 amazing. Uh, you know, uh, with Joe, I mean, we spend a good bit of time on the water. But the thing is, like with anything, is you know, just having encouragement from the right people. And when you have that encouragement, it's just what it is. Like with, with Joe, with me, is just. I mean, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. I mean, we were like upper, lower middle class. I mean, just like lower class, you know, economic bracket. I mean, just I come from absolutely nothing, and you know, everywhere where I came from, people said, you're never going to accomplish anything. You're not, you know, you're basically never going to leave this town. And when it comes to actually having a mentor, Joe was a mentor in fly fishing, but more importantly, he was kind of like a, almost like a life coach. And all he ended up doing was just giving me some encouragement because from a academic standpoint, I was, I hated school. I mean, I, I was lost in school. I had no drive, no direction. But when I had a guy like Joe just say, hey, you know, if you, you you apply yourself, you do good things, you work hard, you might be able to, you know, teach. Uh, you might be able to get into the industry. And, you know, he gave me some great advice when it comes to fishing, but what he did more for me than anything else was actually just give me life advice. And and that was the meant, and that was the, the driving force that really got me to push hard, to, you know, enter competitions, to to speaking engagements, to become a better instructor, become a better teacher. Uh, so that mentorship for me, if it wasn't for that, uh, and then also having the, you know, the even my wife is kind of like my, you can say uh, she's also a mentor and, and a big advocate and has really helped me out along the way. So if it wasn't for like those two people in my life, who, who the heck knows what I would be doing right now, but having people that give you the advice and encouragement and surrounding yourself with people that are going to give you positive energy. Uh, it's, it's amazing what that can do 
to a person, mm-hmm. uh, especially a person like me that really had no drive or was kind of lost early on in my life. That's really an interesting story. And, and what I like to hear you say too, is like, I know for me, I'm a horrible student. Like I just, I get in the classroom and I'm, but if you put me on a river or you're talking to somebody that can tell you something that interests you, you, you know, that all of a sudden things start to stick in in the memory. You know what I mean? It's not like sitting in a classroom looking at numbers on a board. It actually means something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that we're going outside my wheelhouse, but when it comes to the education stuff, I mean, if you look at some of the more successful people in life, it's just, you know, with our education system, it's not just the standardized test, but it's just people who have dropped out of school, but they've had that passion, like jobs and, and, and all these people, but just having that direction and, and having uh, that passion. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. I mean, you know, it's not always X's and O's, but just having that driving force. And when you, when you have, when someone is like completely focused in on something, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, the results that can occur because of that. Maybe you could share with us how fly fishing has changed your life. Cause I know it's, it's basically what you do, how, you know, what does a typical year look like for you? Maybe take us through that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm just kind of the, you're out of shop. Um, so, I mean, as of right now, I, I am, uh, I've done a number of things. I was in graduate school at Penn state and then worked for the fish and boat commission, doing stream restoration work, you know, doing habitat enhancement, but, and then I, I managed fly shops and was in a little bit. But now um, I just work for myself. And essentially I, I do like 110 days, somewhere between like 100 and 120 days a year guided. And those are like anything from four hours to eight hours. Uh, I'll do that. I don't want to do any more than 100, uh, 110, because uh, a couple of years I've done, you know, close to 160, 170 days. And you become a little crusty. Uh, you don't want to spend as much time on the water. So for me, 100, 110 is kind of the perfect number. And then I do, I probably do 50 to 60 speaking engagements on top of that, mm-hmm. along with a number of other clinics uh, and engagements. Uh, I'm involved with writing for Fly Fisherman Magazine. Um, I'm working on another book project. I'm doing a, a nymphing DVD, a couple of nymphing DVDs coming up down the road. Um and that's just all side stuff. And then basically, so I will guide essentially from like beginning of March and then I will go pretty hard till about June, uh, early June. And then I, I kind of take off. Uh, one of the reasons why I went to business for myself was so when my kids who are now age eight and 10, when they got off of school, you know, one of us, my wife and I, we wanted to make sure we weren't having someone else raise our kids in the summer. So uh, I went to business for myself so I could take off the entire summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, you know, when the kid, when the kids get off of school, we just, uh, we're out, we're outside all the time. And whether it's bass fishing, going for hikes, and then we do a, a monster road trip out West for about three and a half to four weeks, uh, either like in Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, and, uh, Montana, but it's like this massive road trip that we do. And then, uh, we come back and spend the next, you know, month here in Pennsylvania in like August, smallmouth fishing, kids go back to school. And then I, uh, go back to guiding a little bit part-time, but then do a, a pile of speaking engagements and travel uh, from here till about February. Somebody wanted to get a hold of you to do some speaking or some lecturing or some, some talks. Uh, how would they do that? Yeah, you can just go on to my my, my website. It's just living on the fly. It's just L-I-V-I-N uh, on the fly. And then I, you can just reach and contact me that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. You strike me as somebody that's really got you said something that really stuck with me there. You said, I like to guide 100 to maybe 110 days on the water. Anything more than that gets a little stale. Um, maybe speak to how important it is keeping that fresh. Like I'm sure from, from a lecturing point of view, just from a life point of view, um, it sounds to me like you're all in, but you know how to spread it out. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, there's a, a famous quote, and I'm just, and I'm just, I'm, hack, I'm hacking the quote here a little bit, but basically, yeah, only those that know how far to go have basically gone the distance in the entire way, and then they, they know how to kind of come back. Right. And so, you know, I you push yourself to the limits, and then you, you start figuring out when you start getting crusty, when you're not happy. And the, the other thing about, from a guiding standpoint, is, I mean, now with the people I have, I mean, I have such a great clientele where they're, they're basically like friends and family. So, 
you know, I have some newbies that come in, um, you insert them in there once in a while, but for the most part, these people have been with me for years and it's, they are, you know, from a guy, I don't even want to say it's guiding because it's more instruction when people come to me, it's more wanting to learn how to fish, uh, rather than just being a rod caddy because I, I don't want to be a rod caddy where I'm just basically telling someone cast here and then, you know, just set the hook, you know. The people who I enjoy spending time on the water, and it's trust me, it, in my opinion, it's a lot more work to be an instructor because I'm on. It's eight hours when I'm on the water. I mean, you're constantly over their shoulders, and those are the people I want. They want to fine tune their game, and you're working with them. You know, you're going back and forth. Uh, but someone who just wants to catch fish and just you know be told where to cast—that is—it it, it would be my definition of hell. And to the point now where you find out. You know, it's almost like you interview. You know, you interview your, your clients, future clients, or what my friend will call them guests, because they're more like guests than the clients. But you, 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 you strike a chord with them, and then you know, if it sounds like it's going to, you, you, the two of you or the three of you are going to mesh back and forth. It's great, but you know, a lot of times you'll find out you'll talk to some of these even high-profile people that they want to come in, they want to hire you, and you just find out that you know what they're asking for. You really don't have the capabilities of providing them. You just don't want to provide those capabilities or, or just be a babysitter. So, mm-hmm. uh, so for, yeah, uh, you just, you find the right people, you limit your days. And then the other thing too, about keeping it fresh is, you know, I could easily with, with guiding, you know, for small mouth and, you know, even with our winter fish, I probably could bang out 200 days here a year. Uh, but one of the things that keeps things incredibly fresh for me are the speaking engagements where I'll go, to like Michigan, I'll go to Arkansas, out west. Uh, I, I mean, I have a pile of work uh, this fall out in the. Uh, I'll be doing some work in, in Oregon, uh, in California. But when I go out there, I'll spend a couple days working. But then I'll also hire a guide, local guide on their waters. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing when you go out and you work with different people, fish new waters. How that keeps things fresh. It keeps the flow of information constantly going. I think the worst thing that you can do. You can make more money staying home, working 250 days a year. But the thing is, you are the, the more you stay home and keep doing the same thing, the, the bigger the rut you're going to develop. And you are going to soon develop a rut that's so deep that you're never going to get out of it. You're going to get stuck, stuck and stagnant. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to do is be, is is be in that rut. I, I want to keep things fresh, and I want to show my clients, my guests. I, w- I want to keep them in the loop with what kind of new and exciting and some of the things I'm learning as I'm traveling as well. Yeah, I would imagine, too, that getting out, getting to, diff- getting to different parts of the states, fishing different waters, that, you know, you're investing in, in experiences, and you can bring that back to the lecture room, I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, in, you know even when I was in college and grad school and even high school, I, the best teachers I know uh, were the ones that were not just always academics. I mean, they were out in the field. Uh, especially like my professors, my favorite professors were the ones that were in the field for 10, 15, 20 years. And then at age maybe 40, 45, they decided they wanted to go back to school, get a doctorate and, and, and go teaching. But they had like 15, 20 years of experience in the real world that they could translate into the academia world. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're exactly right. So it's just developing those experiences and be able to transfer that into the you know, classroom setting. In in Pennsylvania, in your neck of the woods, in central PA, where do you go, George, when you want to talk fly fishing? Is there a local fly shop in your area or watering hole or coffee shop that you like to kind of get your, your fix? Yeah, I mean, there's, central PA is, is kind of it's kind of like, I think in the East Coast, we have, a, you know, it's all subjective, but we have, there's like three meccas. I mean, you have like the Catskills, uh, which has like the Delaware River and the Beaver Kill and all that, and then you've got like Asheville, North Carolina, uh, kind of on the on the foothills of the Smokies and all those streams. And then you have State College, Pennsylvania, uh, and you know State College is a, kind of like the the mecca of of trout fishing, I, I think, in the Mid Atlantic region because anywhere you go in twenty five to thirty minutes, you've got a number of limestone spring creeks, and then you've got countless tributaries that dump in there, and you know. State College, um, there's a couple fly shops. There's TCO Fly Shop, the one that I managed for years, is a, is a great mecca, and then also Fly Fishers Paradise. But anywhere you go there, you go into town, it's like going into like West Yellowstone. 
uh, you know, you go to the local gas station, there's going to be guys with, or, and ladies with like waiters on, getting ready, uh, fly rock hangers you know, on top of their cars. So pretty much you park yourself anywhere in the central Pennsylvania area and you're going to, you'll be engaged in fly fishing pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. It amazes me how many listeners we have in your state. Um, I want you to kind of think about in your mind the perfect day, George, on the water. So if you're if you were to paint a picture for the listeners, uh, what does that look like? When does it start? What kind of water are you fishing and what species are you are you chasing? You know, I I kinda like it all. Um, you know, I grew up trout fishing. I definitely have a soft spot, but for me, my my perfect day right now is we have some developing musky fisheries. Um uh, it it's been such a long, hard learning curve for me. I, I, there were you know, I would spend hours and days and days, and, and I didn't see a fish. And finally, I started digging a few things out on the local fisheries. But for me, it would be going out maybe 15, 20 minutes away from my house. There's a couple spots where I know there's there's some musky, and then just basically it would be that fall period, kind of like October, late October, early November. Just when those muskies are starting to put the feedback on for going into full-blown like winter mode, but just when our waters are down low and clear, our rivers, and you're just working these musky flies uh, and these flies that you can see, you know, from a large distance, and you're just working these flies. And then early morning, you got maybe a little haze in the water. You're seeing this stream, this maybe eight inch stream, or just slowly being worked back. And then before you know it, you just see this set of eyes and this love. I just slowly just starts just start swimming it. It's not it's not running at mock speed because they're the apex predator. They don't, you know, they just they're just following it, and and they just slowly follow, follow, follow. And you bring the fly to the boat, and they're still on it. And then you go into your figure, and they just follow the fly, they follow the fly, and then all of a sudden the eyes disappear and they drop down at the bottom. Uh, and but one of the things I've learned from you know a good friend of mine, Blank Chocolate, is even when you see them, see them disappear, just keep figuring. That's why moving. That fish disappears, and then but you you keep the face, you keep the figure eight, and then before you know it, you work a little deeper. That figure eight, and then just wham! I mean, just out of the blue, it just that fish just back on it. It just jumps, it rips that fly that rod almost out of your hand, and before you know it, this, this fish just just bellies up and you've got like this 40, 42 inch muskie. We don't have a lot of big muskies, but, uh, yeah, the, the fish that we have are really healthy and, and they're starting to get some good sizes. but that would be like, that's like my perfect day right now for fishing. It's just chasing these elusive creek, creek, I mean, basic creatures that are very difficult and, and time consuming to catch, but just, you know, you, you put hours, uh, and we don't have the muskie fisheries that some of these guys do like in, Virginia and Wisconsin, we have very few fish in sometimes bigger water. So sometimes I'm putting like five, six, seven days in before I actually get it deep. Uh, but when you, you know, as I said, the more work and the harder it is, but when it happens, it just makes it all that better. And that's just, uh, you know, I don't get too excited, but catching muskies, you know, you, you almost get like giddy like a, you know, a school kid. You, you're just hooping and hollering up and down. That's something that I just don't do, but Something about the musky fisher that just it just brings out that that child in me. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. We we talked to quite a few musky guys and gals, and uh, it's it's pure adrenaline, and it sure looks addictive. I tell you, I haven't tried it yet, but it's on it's on my bucket list for sure. I'm curious if there's um, do you spend a lot of time at the fly tying bench? I do. I mean, I'm, yeah, uh, I just kind of flies with my my little guy right now, so. Uh, a couple, you know, a couple hours ago, but yeah, I, you know, I, I like tying my own flies. You know, and there's a number of reasons why I like tying my flies economically, but then also just, you know, just mentally, it's just, it's just a relaxing uh, thing. And then just like anything else, when, you know, I, I like just catching fish with flies that I tie. I like my clients catching fish with flies that I tie. And, and a lot of times with, with fly fishing, is just, you know, you're solving problems. So. You know, you know, you just, you know, sometimes you're maybe not getting down deep enough. You don't want any split shots, so we just need to add a little bit more weight. And we do that with a larger tungsten bead. Uh, or, you know, there's just a, a number of factors. But what I love about it is just I don't stock up full bore. I don't tie thousands and thousands of flies in the off-season. Basically, I just tie a couple of days uh, before or even the morning of 
the trip, just preparing for the conditions that I plan on seeing for that specific day. Right. I mean, you, you've talked several times tonight about solving the puzzle, and that, that does come up a lot. And I know for me, tying is part of the, a big part of that picture, but what about entomology? How much time do you really spend researching these bugs, researching these life cycles of these insects? Is that, is that uh, something you're right into? I mean, I, I'm definitely, I, I am very much a novice entomologist, but I, I've spent some time with some people. I mean, one of the, the guys that managed to shop before, who I worked for at the TCO Fly Shop, was a guy named Paul Weimer. Uh, Paul is not an entomologist, but he's pro- he, he could be qualified as an entomologist. He's one of the smartest bug guys I know. Uh, and even a lot of the entomologists that I know would actually refer to Paul on a lot of occasions. But Paul came out with a book called The Bug Book. Uh, uh, it's a phenomenal book. It's on Amazon, I think, for like $14, $15. But, you know, just like scientists, like when I worked with the, with the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, I would work with a lot of scientists, people with chemistry, uh, biology backgrounds, fisheries backgrounds. And the problem with a lot of the scientists is that there's a disconnect. They don't know how to simply explain things to people uh, in a common sense approach. And, uh, you know, a lot of the books that I've read before in the past, I mean, it's like Latin. And, you know, and if I, if I can't understand it from like the first couple of minutes, like I, I lose interest. And I, for years, I had just a very tough time trying to understand etymology. But uh, spending time with Paul and reading his books, uh, a couple books he's written, uh, I have a really good understanding, I think, of at least the, the basics of etymology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only because there are people like Paul that can explain things in a very common sense approach that would be applicable to you know, the neophyte etymologist who happens to be a fly fisher. Yeah, that's that's really well put because I know I I do get, on occasion get to talk to scientists and people that are uh, you know no fish inside and out and just the knowledge alone doesn't mean that it always translates to to the layperson you know or to the to the average fly fisher. Absolutely, yeah, and you know again I, I'm not a I'm not a big self promoter of what I do, but I mean I've got some friends who, but if anyone's interested in just having a good common sense approach, the bug book. Uh, by Paul Weimer, it, it's an eye opener, and it's it's so it, it's basically written like at like a second grade level, which is good because that's basically the level I stopped learning how to read. But I mean, it's just a very easy, well put book uh, that will get anyone to understand the, the basics of etymology for fly fishing. I saw something last night. I was on a lake. We we're doing a little kind of evening fish on a full moon here in uh, in British Columbia, and I'll tell you what. I saw these two damsels uh, had, had emerged not long ago, and they're they're doing their mating thing on the water. Then the the female or the, the one at the back got off, went down on a on some caraweed, and I actually watched her lay eggs. I didn't realize they went back into the water. I don't know. I just kind of I never really thought about that process. I just happened to catch it. I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty cool. There's this whole world going on in front of our faces all the time. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, just like the, like our coral gordon, if I remember correctly, our, our coral gordon is like a mayfly. And, you know, some, and there, we would always tie, I was always taught how to tie these winged wet flies. And I'm thinking, well, why, why would you want to fish something below the surface with a wing that's fully emerged? And it's because the fact that after the, these guns hatch, when, they, when the female goes in, the, the female literally swims under the water to drop her eggs. And that's why the winged wet, uh, this fully winged wet fly works so well. It's just imitating that adult mayfly that is swimming now below the surface to lay her eggs so things like that those are you know a lot of things i think are pretty simple you don't you know you don't need to get too crazy with latin but it's amazing on on some of your fisheries i mean some of the hard fish fisheries especially fisheries like delaware where there's a lot of insects have lots of opportunities they don't have to really move that far uh, for insects and and make it conditioned to specific insects with with particular behaviors and in, in, in those situations, I think it does pay dividends to understand some basic fundamentals of the etymology, especially with what is currently going on. And just having those couple of little hacks, like what you experienced when I was talking about with the quote, Gordon, those are the things that sometimes will be the difference between catching maybe two or three fish and zero fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you speak to that a little bit, George. Like, when you're on the water, how much of what you do is based on 
past experience and how much of it is it based on okay um i got a gut feeling here something you know this might be going on because a lot of times when we see these hatches on the surface it's been going on underneath for some time and it, it it takes a while to get dialed in maybe speak to that process kind of mental process you have when you approach the water i mean yeah the big thing is i mean bad good experiences come from a b- bunch of bad experiences essentially so what that what i mean by that is everything's a building block and, and usually the more data you have into your hard drive uh sometimes the, the quicker the process the, the information comes and you can solve the solutions. But for me, it's just the big thing is I think the big, the biggest thing I see most people do is, and it's not even complicated. It's just taking a chill pill because as soon as everyone they get done working and they jump in the river and rarely do I see someone just like, just sit back and just look. I mean, just take two minutes to try to figure out, you know, look at the water see if there's anything on the water, uh, just see if they can see fish where they're at, if they're deep, if they're in the shallows. But the big process is just because there are so many variables um, that, that come across. Uh, but it's just taking two, three minutes before you actually make a cast and develop a game plan. And it's amazing. I, we live five, ten minutes away from the stream. And, you know, we, my wife and I, we had like a little date tonight. We fished. Uh, and it was right before, right after a rainstorm. And my approach was completely different tonight than it was last night when we had bright sun and I was taking my son out. It's just, you know, understanding the variables, but then just, again, just competing. I just taking two, three minutes, looking at those variables, and then coming up with a game plan and executing. Yeah, that's something I think that uh, we can all do better is not having that preconceived notion when you're driving to the water or hiking down to the stream of all oh, this is what what I'm going to use, y- you have to be more reactive than, than than looking ahead like that. I think that you get the blinders on, you know. You're you're exactly right. And the worst, I think, I don't want to say it, but I'll say it. But I think one of the worst things you can do is you're exactly right. You know, if you're fishing conditions that are almost identical day in day out, and fishers don't, there are some situations like that. But when you build your rig at the house. Or when you do that, like, this is my rig, this is what I'm going to do. And when you go in there, you are already developing a bias as to what the fish are, or what you're going to tell the fish to do. And as a friend of mine always says, you've got to let the fish, you can't dictate the fish. The fish are going to dictate to you what's going to happen. So when I get to the water, I, I'm not rigged. I, you know, I have the rod, I have the line out, the leader, and so forth. But I get to the water, I take a look, I think about things for a few moments, and then once I think, once I see the factors, those those variables, that's when I build my rig. But I try not to build a rig beforehand because when I do, I am I just I'm, I'm predisposed to basically use what I've already rigged up, and usually it's not the right rig. As somebody that teaches a lot of people how to fly fish, um, how to approach a water system, what's the single biggest, if you could pick one or two things that kind of like comes up all the time, uh, what, what would you say that might be? Well, obviously, I, I think one of the first ones you get is, you know, I mean, most common question is where do fish hold? Uh, and that's where really the advice of a guide, a local fly shop, or even spending time with someone who's been on that water long enough because, I mean, trout streams are just like human beings. I mean, you're never going to find, you know, two that are identical. And, and, and one of the things I've gone away from before, you know, the phrases I, I used to, you know, to kind of pop my own ego up with clients, is we have some tough waters that we fish here in the east, especially in the summertime. But I would always say to them, you know, you know, if you can catch a fish here, you can catch a fish anywhere, which is kind of a BS statement because, you know, just because you can catch a fish on the Henry's Fork during the PND hatch when you have got millions of insects in the water and the fish become super selective, doesn't necessarily mean that you have the stamina and the patience and the the physical warehouse or know-how of being able to cast in small tight, you know, small stream conditions in Pennsylvania where you're basically fishing in a rhododendron uh, tunnel. So, 
every stream is different. You know, one of the things I would look at, you know, when you're talking about like, where do fish hold? I mean, like where the one stream that I, I do a lot of my work on is called Spring Creek. Spring Creek gets pressure. I mean, it, it gets so much pressure. But the thing is, sometimes the fishing can be difficult, but the, 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 the fact is, because of how much pressure these fish get, they are not really too concerned with humans or anglers walking in the water. You can basically step right on top of these fish because of how hard they get hit. So essentially, these fish will hold in like two, three inches of water. Uh, and you can walk through them, they get spooked, and then two minutes later, they're right back in the same spot. So on a stream like Spring Creek, I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, and, but then when you go to the mountain streams where they get very little pressure, they're very, you know, they're, they're easy to catch, but once you put pressure on them, they're gone. Uh, and they're going to shut down for two, three hours. So the big thing when it comes to like, where do fish hold is just spend time. You know, you can't, there are some things in, in life you just can't hack and you can't hack experience. And when you develop, even spending like three, four days in a body of water, you develop that confidence about where these fish are going to hold. And once you develop that confidence, that's often the key to actually catching fish and having success in anything. Uh, but you just got to put a little bit of time on the water and get comfortable with where fish are holding. We're chatting today with that George Daniel out of Central PA, author, writer, teacher, competitive fly fisher, uh, writes for numerous magazines. George, if there's something about fly fishing that you would like to see change. Is, does anything come to mind? There's always things we can be better with everything. I mean, I mean, obviously social media, spot burning. I mean, that's probably, probably one of my, my biggest pet peeves. And, you know, you can't, you know, you can't blame them. I mean, we're all guilty of it. We always want to show that fish or whatever. And, uh, but I think one of the things that has really, you know, just like some of the spots, uh, you know, there are some places where, you know, well, I'll talk like Spring Creek and stuff. Spring Creek is, there's, there's no secrets. I mean, there's no secret sections on Spring Creek. It's, it's public knowledge. and It's been a, a famous fishery for over 100 years. Uh, you know, you talk about that, you know, it's not great to put more pressure on it, but it's, it, most of it's public access, uh, and it's open to the public, and putting a few more people on there, it's going to make maybe fishing a little bit more challenging, but it's not going to hurt the fishery. Uh, there's a few areas, you know, where I know that you have guys that are, it's private property. The landowners are very open to people fishing, but people post pics, and even if they don't post the names, pretty much you can go onto a Google, Google Earth, you can find these locations, and then before you know it, you've know, you, you got 10 people going into the spot, and then trust, you know, going on this property, beating the hell out of the, the trails, the, you know, and leaving litter and stuff. And then I've seen a couple sections starting, you know, people are, are thinking about closing properties just because of how much increased people uh, that are coming out on, on the property. So, you know, that's, that's one thing. But, you know, the other thing is just, you know, I, I think the great thing about fly fishing, it's, it really is, it's, it's a melting pot, you know, and it brings a lot of good people from different backgrounds together. Uh, and, you know, the one thing I would say about just changing things is just the culture with things. I mean, you look at the old generation, the old generation bitches about the young, and then the young bitches about the old. Uh, and, you know, I'm at that stage of my life. You know, I heard uh, Larry Dahlberg. So we're doing, you know, I listened to Larry Dahlberg one time, and he said, you know, you go to different stages in life, but in one of those stages is that you just want to catch fish the way you want to catch fish. Are you heading out in the water tomorrow? I am. Yeah, I am. All right. Uh, streams, creeks, spring, spring creeks. What, what are you doing? Uh, there's a there's a little limestoner uh, close to my house. I'll probably hit that uh, for a couple hours in the morning. And then uh, the one thing I've been doing a lot, and I, and I love doing it, is the top water game for smallmouth bass. And we've got excellent conditions right now. And going solo, I've got uh, a stand-up paddleboard all set up, you know, with fly craft, all set up for fly fishing with an anchor system. So uh, I, I just love getting kind of dropping, dropping, getting dropped off, and then just kind of floating down, working some water, but just working top water cool. uh, for bass. Uh, and I think sometimes your best bass 
actually come on the top water this time of the year for us. Yeah, there's nothing like that. I, I have a lot of smallmouth fishing where I'm at too, and uh, I I totally get you. And it's it's a perfect time of year for that, isn't it? No, it's it's great. I mean, it's, you know, trout fishing is pretty good this time of the year, but when things get really warm, I mean, I kind of give the trout a break, uh, especially during midday. And uh, it, there's nothing like that top water eat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if somebody wants to check out, um, I want to throw some media uh, sites out there, um, George. So, so let's get your your uh, your website out there and, and your Instagram handle. What are we looking for? Sure. Uh, with my website, it's just living on the fly. It's L-I-V-I-N on the fly.com. And then my Instagram handle, I think, is uh, George Daniel Fly Fishing. I know that you have a lot of sponsors. I know I know Orvis is one of them, and uh, I'm all for plugging stuff. So is, is there anything uh, you want to push out there? I know you're you're a loon guy too. Yeah, I mean, I've got just uh, you know, everyone makes great products, but you know, I, I enjoy the people. Orvis has been uh, Orvis has been fantastic. They're mostly kind of almost like family to me. Uh, the people at Loon have been great. I love Loon. Uh, Flycraft boats. I mean, that's those boats have kind of opened up so much water for me on, on my central Pennsylvania waters. And then, you know, Regal, my favorite fly tying vice. I mean, I've had my first Regal was at age 13. I still have the original vice, just a, a tough vice. So I uh, love that vice. Love the people behind the company and the services that they provide. So, yeah, I mean, just like anything else, I mean, it's just there's a lot of people that make great products. But uh, there's not always great products made by great people, and I just try to surround myself with, you know, the two of that, those two qualities. That's a great quote. Uh, what kind of Orvis rod are you fishing? Are you fishing the Helios, or are you fishing something a little softer? You know, I, I fish the Helios. I mean, I, I work, I do a little bit of work with their, you know, with the rod designers. So, I mean, I like the the Helios. The Helios is a great rod, and I think I think one of the biggest mistakes Orvis did this year is they came out with the clear water. Their clear water rod, uh, you know, because most of the time when you have like a low end fly rod, is like one basically like one blank, one one taper, and they use that for like their one weight to their twelve weight. So it doesn't matter if you're tarpon fishing or if you're going brook trout fishing with a three weight, it's like the same taper. Hmm. What they end up doing, I think they use anywhere from like seven to eight different tapers. I mean, they have like tapers specifically designed for specific tasks. So I do a lot of nymph fishing, and uh, one of the rods I help them with this year is their 10 foot three weight clear water just a kind of a soft tip more of a euro specific ride also can throw dry flies but for 200 dollars, that is uh an absolute gem wow that's 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 a sweet price point too i know i'm fishing a 10 10 foot five weight uh helios three and i'll tell you <laughs> it's the best rod i've ever owned hands down love it yeah this guy's yeah you know sean he i mean there's, there's some guys who do some science, but when you talk to him, I mean, he is, you know, he is a fly fishing fanatic, and he's got a very good scientific approach. And the cool thing about Orvis is that they've, you know, I'm not saying they've got deep pockets, but some of the tools and the equipment that they do to actually just test uh, rod tracking. I mean, people talk about rod tracking, but what what the hell does that mean? I mean, the instruments and what these guys are showing me, I mean, they can they can tell like true tracking, when that rod tip moves off a plane and so forth. So they've got a very passionate group of fly rod designers and just designers in general for Orvis. But but they are putting some incredible design and technology into the rods these days. And it's not just the the Helios, but they're doing that same with the Clearwater rods. Uh, So I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just really stoked and excited to be on board with a company like Orvis. Uh, And then also... Yeah, again, they make great products, but then also they put their money with their mouth. I mean, they put you know five percent of you know some of their profits back into the conservation efforts. So they definitely make some money, but they also put a lot of money back into the the resource that you know we all love and enjoy. Could you just speak briefly to your experience between the difference between personal fishing, guided trips? And then competitive fly fishing, because those are three totally different animals, and those are worlds that you're fully involved with. Yeah, I mean, fly, the competition scene was different for me. I mean, I guess basically in my early 20s, I mean, most people were competitive. The only thing that drove competitive fly fishing for me was just the fact that I just wanted to see what I could do. You know, and, and for me, 
whether I was playing basketball, track, or, or doing any event, the only time where I, I tend to like really develop a good focus, a strong focus, is when I'm put under an immense amount of pressure. And for me, I can I, I basically perform my best uh, during competitions, uh, just because you know some people will waver when pressure's on them, but for whatever reason, when there's a lot of pressure on me, I kind of do a little more, a little better. Uh, so it was, it was just something I just kind of forced myself to do. And, and it was just something I, I just wanted to see. Um, but, you know, with, with, with competitive fly fishing, I, you know, I, I competed for five years. I had a great time and I learned so much. Uh, and I spent so much time in my learning curve during that time period was just insanely sharp. Uh, but competitive fly fishing for me took a lot of the fun out of it because, you know, when I, I'm pretty hard on myself. When I didn't do well, I was I was pissed. Uh, you know, I would lose sleep. I would I would be furious at my results, and I ended up almost to the point where I resented fly fishing. Now, for some people, that doesn't happen, but it's just what happens with me. And I could I could register that. I could see what was going on, and I just realized it wasn't a good thing uh, for the long term. So I kind of stepped away from the competitive end. Uh, but from a guiding standpoint. It's it's fun because the thing I like about the guiding is you you, you get to fish through your guest, you know, and as long as they have an open mind, and as long as you are able to convey your thoughts and ideas clearly and concise that they can move put into action, it's amazing, you know. And nothing is nothing is better for me than when you take someone that just is struggling. They're just flopping, lying in the water. And sometimes it might take an hour. And sometimes, you know, I have, you know, you might have some type A personalities. Uh, I have a friend who is a, a former SEAL, you know, just that type A personality. It just wants to just power everything. And that's not what fly fishing is about power. I mean, fly fishing is about finesse. So whether it's now or in some instances, it took me four hours to finally break these people down and get them to slow things down and perform. But once they do that, you can see the light in their eyes. They just like to have, they have that aha moment, and that is incredibly rewarding. I mean, it's it's like it, it's a it's a tangible experience. I think, you know, that you see that look in their eyes. It's like it's like a carpenter like finishing like a beautiful piece of woodwork. Right. Uh, and for me, when I when I see that, when I see that look in their eyes. That is like my tangible thing that I could take a picture, a mental snapshot, and that's that gives me, you know, move, you know, that gives me encouragement to go on to my next day. So I love that. No, no. In my in my personal experience, it's uh, I don't fish eight hours every day anymore. I just don't have time. I mean, with with kids and and you know, and besides, I mean, I, I'm on the water a lot as it is. Uh, so for me, when I'm when I'm fishing now, I'm fishing for myself, but you know. I, tr- I might only get out for like an hour, maybe sometimes 45 minutes. But one of the things I learned and heard about when I was in basketball in high school, we, you know, we would do summer camps like everyone else. But one of these camps, one of the head coaches used to coach, was in, I think an assistant down first year in North, uh, North Carolina when Michael Jordan was mm-hmm. playing. And when they were still down there, Jordan would come in sometimes in the summer and he would practice. And he would say, you know, and he was saying, you know, Jordan was, you know, the best basketball player. And he would think, you know, go into it because he knew Jordan was going to be there, you know, that morning. He's, you know, he's a gym rat. He's going to probably be there for like six, seven hours just working and working. But instead, what he noticed with Jordan is he just spent like 30 minutes. But it was like, he said it was like the most intense 30 minutes he'd ever seen anyone. It was like pure, utter focus. So now when I'm fishing for myself, when I'm out there, even if it's 35, 40 minutes, I'm trying to always improve myself, but I am focused incredibly hard for that 35, 45 minutes, just trying to get a little better with my cast, be a little more accurate with my cast. You know, I want 95% accuracy rather than 85% accuracy. So, so that's, that's how it, it's not always fun for a lot of people, but for me, part of the reward and the excitement is actually seeing those small bits of improvement. Uh, so that's kind of how I approach my, my personal. And then also for me, you know, with kids, uh, it, it's, it's awesome because now I get to basically like relive my childhood. 
you know, it's, you know, my, my son, you know, especially my son, he is taking on the fly fish and I've almost like ruined his life to the point where that's all he wants to do is fish. And, you know, whether he's catching an eight inch perch or a 10 inch sucker or an 11 inch brown trout, I mean, he, he is just excited. So it's doing that and watching him. It's like reliving my youth when I was six and seven years old catching my first trout. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on, but that, that's what, that's what makes it exciting for me is, you know, I was a competitor. That was great. I enjoy teaching. I like fishing for myself, but I also now like uh, working with my kids. So it, it keeps things very fresh for me and it keeps you exciting. I love what you said there, George, just kind of seeing it through the eyes of others. You're seeing it through the eyes of your kids. You're seeing it through the eyes of, of the guys and gals that you're guiding. So for me, that's, um, there's a lot of satisfaction I would imagine in that. I mean, there is, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm a great angler. I've done I call a lot. I mean, I've caught a few fish in my lifetime, but it gets to a point where, you know, you're catching fish, you're catching fish, that's great. But for me now, the most exciting aspect is not just catching fish, but now it's actually helping people see that same excitement that I had when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. So for me, that's more, more satisfaction than actually catching fish on my own. Well, I'll tell you, fly fishing's in a better place because you're teaching it. I really appreciate you taking the time, George, uh, tonight. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. We've been chatting today with George Daniel out of Central PA, author, writer, teacher. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.